0: Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 103, recorded on April 9th of 2020, uh, the show where I, uh, I'm your host, Anka Marechka, and, and I geek out about the photo industry news that happens to come across my desk on a weekly basis, always joined by a co-host and uh, the MVP of co-hosts, the guy that has been here the most and uh, opinions that I value quite greatly is Steve Brazel. Steve, how are you doing, man? I'm good. How are you, my friend? I'm good. I'm good. I'm uh, you know adjusting to the new normal of uh, you know everybody always being at home and having a preschooler running around constantly. Uh, you know, transforming me into a princess or a unicorn or sometimes a unicorn princess. Um, it uh, it's very memorable times to say the least. But I, uh, I'm sorry, I don't
1: believe it unless I see photos. Uh,
0: I don't and think specifically I've the
1: unicorn them princess is the one that I want to see. I,
0: the photos of that don't exist. You'll just have to take my word for it for now, but it's going to happen again. And I'm sure a photo is going to be snuck by somebody. Um, but
1: yeah, we're, we're having a good time uh, here. Just trying to uh, well, stay let me, home. let me tell you, cause I was a stay at home dad for years, cherish this time. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, there people, people look at this as very negative, but the truth of the matter is there are some amazing things and advantages to being at home all the time, such as watching your, your daughter grow up. Uh, and I, I agree. Uh,
0: my productivity has taken a huge hit, uh, but uh, still things are getting done. And even today, uh, I just published my, uh, or rather DP Review published on my behalf, the sep- uh, second episode of my new series on the nice. DP Review TV network. And it's all about Boca. And uh, I have been uh, receiving some flack as to how I pronounce that word. Because that's not how it may have been pronounced by somebody who is natively speaking it in Japanese, Um, but uh, suck it up, people, and live with it because people pronounce words differently when they're adopted by different languages, uh, even in different dialects of the same language, and uh, you all know what I'm talking about. Even within different cultures in the same area. Exactly, and you know, it's uh, language is a very fluid thing. I mean, it's why we're not all speaking Shakespearean English right now, even though that's technically modern English, uh, which is much different than Middle and Early English. So uh, that's anyhow, why that's,
1: I don't pronounce your name, Don. I pronounce it Jim. There, thank you for that, uh,
0: Scott. And uh, <laughs> and we'll we'll carry on, uh, but the, um, uh, the, the episode is, I'll actually put a, a link embedded in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com So you can get easy access to it there, but take a look, uh, and give me some comments and feedback because it's surprisingly easy to create really interesting out of focus details that, you know, I, I specialize in macro photography, sure, but this could be useful, uh, on many different scales. So long as you get creative and find ways to adapt it uh, with macro the background is often as or more important than the foreground because it frames the subject. It's the entire stage for your actor. Uh, And an actor without a stage, it might still work in some cases, but you always have to consider all of the elements that are going into an image. Uh, And there's some pretty fun ways to control that, I think.
1: So, So, okay, before we get into our first story, I have to follow up on that. So do you ever, as you're doing macro photography, do you ever choose... Cause you obviously have 9 million different macro, you know, lenses and combinations <laughs> thereof. Do you ever choose a specific lens? You've got two lenses that could take a similar shot for what you're going to do, but you choose this one over that one because of the bokeh or because of the blade pattern that it's going to create on high, anything like that?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, if if I'm playing around with something like soap bubble bokeh, which is where um, the out of focus elements have a brighter edge around them than the center part of the out of focus elements. And uh, usually that happens when lenses are shot wide open uh, or maybe they don't have aperture blades at all. If you're reusing a an old projector lens or something, Uh, and so it's circular, so you get this circular bubble type shape, and sometimes that's desired. Um, But I've got um, I've had some really fun results with my Canon MPE sixty five millimeter lens that has um, hexagonal bokeh because it has a six bladed aperture, and when I've shot some freezing soap bubbles, having speckles in the background that are out of focus be hexagonal actually lends its, uh, you know, look to snowflakes and those crystals, which are all six sided. They are hexagonal as well. So yeah, there's consideration to be made there for sure. Maybe I'm shooting not because I want the background to have any noticeable um, specular highlights uh, that are creating these effects, uh, in which case I will choose a lens that will create a, a much smoother background. The uh, Irix 150 millimeter macro lens and the LyOL 100 millimeter macro that I've been testing behave that way. So it's an artistic choice and you just have to choose the right tool for the job. Gotcha. Uh, Speaking of macro lenses, I'm going to add a couple to my portfolio here uh, if I win the lottery. Um, Two lotteries. (laughs) So uh, a new lens announcement from Cook. A lot of people that might not have heard of the company Cook. They are based out of the UK. They make cinema lenses and they make really good uh, desired cinema lenses if one can afford them. So this is from a news shooter that's reporting this. I couldn't find it on uh, the regular blogs that I normally look at because this is a niche product. Uh, It says that Cook Optics has announced uh, new focal length lenses in its S7 slash I and anamorphic slash I full frame plus ranges. The large format uh, S7i range now gets a 300 millimeter and three one-to-one magnification, that's life-size, so it's macro, uh, full frame plus lenses. And so that's a 60 millimeter, a 90, and a 150 millimeter, and they form a new branch in that S7i And family. the
1: one-to-one is a standard, like if you think of a Canon or a Nikon, you know, 100 or 105 or 60, it's a standard magnification for macro. Well, and that's where the word macro actually comes from, because macro means
0: life-size uh that's why it's like applied to terms like macroeconomics and things that have nothing to do with small things they have things to do bigger um and so at one-to-one magnification if i were to photograph a ruler that has millimeter markings on it with a full frame sensor i will see 36 millimeter markings because my sensor is 36 millimeters across whatever the object is that i'm taking a photo or in this case video of appears in reality the exact same size on the sensor um, a Better analogy would be in the film era if you were to photograph a coin at one-to-one life size and then take that developed frame of film and take that coin and hold them up to each other and they will overlap and fit perfectly. Um, so that's, that's where macro comes from. And one-to-one has always been uh, the tradition. Uh, there's no reason why a lens has to only go to one-to-one in terms of the close focusing distance. A lot of lenses now are going well beyond that. Liowa, uh, Venus Optics has a bunch of their lenses in the Liowa lineup that... Uh, that go all the way to two to one or beyond. Um, so that's always changing. But it's interesting to see that cinema uh, lenses typically don't focus that close. And there's different ways to get there, especially with anamorphic lenses. You need to put diopters on the front or um, in regular optical designs, you might be able to put extension tubes on the back. So it's nice to see that they're building that into to the product. Um, but Steve, at what cost?
1: There you go. Yeah, the, so, cost, the, the cost is, I looked up Cook lenses in general, and the cheapest one I saw, I think, was ten dollars or $11,000 US. And the average one was thirty two dollars or $35,000 US. These are not cheap lenses, but that's understandable. And when I say not cheap lenses, I say that as a photographer. If you're a cinematographer- this is standard practice business to buy lenses like this. There oh, well, are l- l- reasons. Let's,
0: let's refer to this in terms of what type of cinematographer you are, like
1: large motion picture productions, et cetera. Et cetera. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, but see, but that's, that's the big key there is when you're shooting on cameras that are $100,000 or more, when, when you need accuracy, that's when you go to a cinema lens in general is because you need extreme accuracy, extreme clarity. These type of lenses from Cook take that to the absolute next level.
0: Well, and, and by the t- way,
1: T-stops versus F-stops too, right? T-stops versus F-stops. And, and we should mention these lenses are designed for what they call their full frame plus this is important. This is, I think, really. Yeah, useful. that's a key thing. Well, and and the reason why that's key is
0: because that actually has an image circle that's larger than a full frame sensor, and a full frame sensor would typically be thirty six millimeters across. These have an image circle um, that is. Uh, they, they mentioned forty six uh, millimeters uh, in in diameter. Now uh, that might not fit like a 46 millimeter sensor, but it would probably fit well enough, maybe some slight vignetting uh, into Fuji's GFX sensors, which are 44 millimeters by 33 millimeters, but uh, also completely comfortable fitting the biggest sensors that RED has. I believe it's their Monstro uh, sensors, which are larger than full frame. Uh, And if you have a scenario where you're going to drop that kind of money on a camera uh, from Red or any other uh, high-end company that has big sensors in big expensive camera bodies, you might need that slight edge up in having a bigger image circle.
1: Well, but not only that, let's say that you're shooting with a 35-millimeter sensor. Now you're getting just the center part of the glass. Yeah, so you don't you, have the You're, same you're not using that full circle. And so you're staying away from the edges of the optics, which is also going to improve prove your your image quality. You mentioned uh, T stop instead of F stop and we should probably explain that because I've been aware that cinema lenses used T stop for a long time and I've never really looked it up until we were going to discuss this. And it's actually interesting. The T stands for transmission. And the best analogy that I heard was and when you look at these lenses, if you actually go to to newshooter.com the link that we're looking at this at and you look at the lenses, all lenses have, like photography lenses, an f stop breakdown, but it's rather rough. They're not super precise. These have a rather precise arrow and a breakdown of the f stops and the idea of a cinema lens. Because unlike photography, where I shoot a moment in time or regular kind of consumer prosumer or even lower level pro videography, if you're shooting a major motion picture and let's say I'm shooting the motion picture, you know, 1917, and I have to reshoot the same scene over again multiple times over multiple days, I need to know that there's no variance in my aperture. Well, a T-stop is extremely precise so that day-to-day-to-day-to-day, if I choose T4, T3.3, T2.5, like these macro lenses, uh, the 300 millimeter is a 3.3, it's always going to be the same exposure Whereas a normal lens that we think of as photographers will have some variance.
0: Well, and I think the variance comes more in when you have a non prime lens, when you have a zoom lens, right? Where, um, An f stop is the light that's coming into the front of the lens and not the light that's being transmitted all the way through to the back. And so, when you change the focal length of a zoom lens, you're changing the optical arrangement. And uh, the inside of lenses are always painted like a matte black, or they've got some felt or something in there to absorb light because there's always going to be some light that hits the edges and doesn't actually get transmitted through. And that amount of light, as you change the zoom of a lens, will also change. And so, that affects the amount of light that actually ends. Up through the backside, um, which will change
1: your exposure. But uh, even even on a prime, a cinema lens, a T lens is going to be more accurate. If you set a T lens five days in a row at T three point three, and you set a an f stop lens at the exact same aperture five days in a row, you'll have more variance. On many different levels, it's quality control. It's a number of other things. That's why they're $35,000. Well, and part of it too is people don't usually associate focus
0: with focal length. But when you change the focus on a lens, you are also slightly changing the focal length of the lens. um, And that will uh, change the field of view of the lens, something that is often called like focus breathing. And we've talked about that on this podcast before. Uh, So even on a prime lens, your focal length is variable. It is not a static thing. It changes when you change your focus. Uh, And so again, to your point that uh, if you need that accuracy and you're being paid uh, the, the really big bucks that uh, Hollywood or um, anybody doing high-end documentary work that just, they, they need to have this. If you need it, it's there. Uh, And it's a supply and demand thing. If they can survive selling these things at that price point, uh, because it is the best that it can possibly be for the job, then the people are going to pay for it. Uh, at well, least people and think
1: about major motion pictures nowadays are over a hundred million dollars on a regular basis, and an inexpensive, you know, Blumhouse movie is still ten, twenty million dollars. Thirty-two thousand for your lenses is nothing, especially when you consider if you do have mismatches in shooting, paying an editor or a lab to fix those in post. Is much more expensive both on a time and skill level. Well, and you don't throw them in the trash when you're
0: done filming the movie, right? Exactly, I mean, it, they're <laughs> it's assets. A, it, it's, it's an asset that continues on from project to project, and so now there are more assets for people uh, that are doing those productions to take a look at whenever those. And by the way, there are attractive lenses too. The, I, I don't know what it I is mean, about the yellow writing on the awesome. black barrel. It just they're beautiful. They are drool-worthy lenses, and i I don't know if I will ever have one in my hands. And if I do, I will be so afraid of breaking it. Um, but uh, they they are a thing of beauty. They are.
1: They don't performing. mention weight. I wonder how much they weigh. Uh, probably a lot. i, I guess it, it the
0: the weight is no concern, just like the cost is really no concern at the end of the day for these things. So, yeah. yeah. Um, but hey, there you go. Cook C O O K E, a lens company you may have never heard of before. Go down the rabbit hole, check out their website, and see some optics that have never been on your radar. Now, if we're talking about precision. Uh, precision in optics is important, but also, uh, different lenses will skew colors differently. Different light sources will different sensors, different camera will. sensors, exactly. Uh, Not like even a, the
1: sensor, different camera, le- you know, uh, code the, the yeah. way the engineers programmed it to read the sensor.
0: Exactly. Uh, I, I was shooting recently with the, uh, Liowa 24 millimeter probe lens for a project and, uh, it was noticeably green. Uh, Like it had a a, a color cast on it. and Yes, it's a trick lens. And I don't know what they had to do to make the lens even function at all because it's this weird like gun barrel looking type of lens. Um, But uh, yeah, the colors weren't completely accurate coming out the other side of that. And I've got a suite of uh, color calibration tools I've got from uh, from X, right, they have their color checker, and I've got their color checker SG classic, which is a bigger one, the color checker passport, the color checker nano, which is designed for macro shooting and things like that. So it's useful to have. but somebody else has come on to the stage here. And but by the way, uh, x rays not the only person that makes these. There's other companies that do make calibration equipment. Um, and uh, now we have a monstrosity of uh, of a calibration target here from Petapixel. A photographer creates an advanced color chart that blows away everything else on the market. Do you want to take it from here, Steve?
1: Well, the the photographer that created it is Hugo Rodriguez. And he calls it the HR1 Super Chroma HR, clearly standing for Hugo Rodriguez. It's going to be available after the lockdown. I think he's in Spain, I think is what it was. Yep. And as soon as the lockdown in Spain is done, it will become available. It's going to be 350 euro or $381 US. And here's what's in Well, there's so much about this that's interesting, really. It's based on three years of him working on it. So he's actually been using this himself. Over the years and tweaking it, he's got 17 years experience doing product photography and commercial photography, and it's designed for... So let me back up. For, for you and I, for the average photographer, like I've even used color checkers, and there are times shooting concert photography that the lights look weird, and I'll just reset it to my you know standard color checker profile, and the colors do become more realistic and yet still retain that live music feel. This is designed for e-commerce, artwork reproduction, and for those people that have never used something like a color checker, let me just explain the idea. If you're photographing, I'm going to use my, my favorite example for this. If you're photographing a commercial campaign for Coca-Cola, well, the red on a Coca-Cola can is very specific it's a Pantone, uh, uh,
0: it, it is defined very specific, not just even by RGB values. It is no. far more, it's defined by the specific wavelength of light yeah. uh, that is For a lot of those products, back.
1: they wouldn't use a CMYK equivalent even. If they're printing it, they're going to do separate Pantone colors for that print to match it exact. You know, another example, there's the old story of Steve Jobs calling... Uh, the head of Google at the time and saying, you know, I don't really like the color on your icon. Colors matter at that level. The idea of this is so that if you're shooting uh, a makeup model and she's wearing Mac makeup, well, Mac makeup has these weird names and those colors need to look like they're really going to look. You're shooting a clothing line. You're shooting a car company, and they've got names for all these paint colors. Oh, you for know, the like a, a cherry red that has to be exactly that cherry red because if somebody's
0: silver, <clears throat> right? Whatever, whatever that is, it's a slight hint of blue on it. But if that doesn't come across exactly in the image, and somebody buys it and they don't have the proper expectation when they're buying it, and it's something different, then that matters at that level, right?
1: So explain then. Uh, You take it from here and explain why this is better than a color checker, which let's be honest, everybody's shooting Coca-Cola right now. Most of them are using one of two things, probably a Hutch color or a color checker. Right. And so uh, more patches, I guess, would generally be
0: better. And that applies to a lot of calibration. It's what I do with my printer. Um, it's what I do with my monitor. I've got the option to choose small, medium, and large uh, sets of, uh, Sample uh, of, of, of sets. samples. And I always choose the large one. It takes longer, uh, sure. But uh, for me to just walk away from the computer and go make a sandwich and come back, I mean, it's fine. And I, I don't calibrate daily, as some people uh, in really uh, critical scenarios might. But uh, more patches is better by, by, that, by that logic. But there is a law of diminishing returns here. So if you double the amount of patches, you're not going to double your color accuracy. If you're already calibrating to any level, you're going to be pretty solid. That's um, my point. Uh, and... It, it depends a lot on so many different, like, I don't know what kind of material this chart is going to be made on. I know that uh, with X-Rite, they painstakingly make sure that their checkers are spectrally neutral, so that if you're uh, using it in a lighting scenario that has more or less ultraviolet light, A lot of papers and pigments will change. They might fluoresce slightly. Uh, Optical brightening agents in a lot of papers will intentionally take ultraviolet light, fluoresce it into the visible spectrum, uh, which will make them appear brighter than the regular light would normally be able to afford. That's why if you take a piece of cheap copy paper and put it out on the snow, it looks blue against the snow because the snow is spectrally neutral, but the paper is not. And that applies- Well, and when you
1: buy paper, even, it tells you a, a brightness value.
0: Yep. Uh, uh, but the brightness value, usually that means the higher the brightness value, the more optical brightening agents there are inside the paper. However, you can use higher end, more expensive materials to get a brighter paper without OBAs. That's another rabbit hole. Um, but different pigments will also slightly fluoresce or when they're, And it doesn't have to be ultraviolet fluorescence. It could be fluorescence from one band of the visible spectrum into another. And to be spectrally neutral is really important, um, especially when you don't know what lighting conditions are going to be under. And the more patches you have, with more different colors the more difficulty you will have making sure that every single one of those colors is spectrally neutral based on the pigments that are going into it uh, and based on the paper that it's applied to
1: i'm but here's the thing i'm assuming based on the market he's going for so hutch color runs four to five hundred dollars depending on where you look hutch color has six well let's start with color checkers 24 swatches Mm -hmm. hutch color 650 over 650 HR-1 Super Chroma, 999, and they're more evenly distributed. He's also saying it's like the highest resolution card that's possibly out there. But if you're using an accuracy program, like I don't even know how you pronounce this one, but Luma River, I think is what it is, or Basic Color Input 6. If you're using something like that, and you have to be using something like that right now for this, right? And that's a really good point. Those programs can actually take the amount of data you're about to give it and use that. And he's got a big quote in here about, you know, how being evenly distributed matters. But here's what I thought. When I had Moose Peterson on my podcast and we were talking, we got into this conversation a little bit about the fact that because he shoots nature and wildlife, he doesn't shoot nature and wildlife as art. He shoots nature and wildlife as documentary. He wants to document the creatures that are out there. So he wants whatever bird he shoots, those colors need to be real life accurate. Well, if you're shooting nature and wildlife for documentary purposes for National Geographic, if you're shooting for science, like I say, if you're shooting for a corporate company that has color matching issues, product photography, makeup, beauty, fashion, I can definitely see this being useful and it's you get almost double the colors for less money than the Hutch color.
0: Yeah. And uh, it, uh, there's a lot of other considerations here too, though. I mean, yes, if you need this, you're going to have really high quality lights. They're going to be uh, the highest CRA numbers that you can get from xenon flash tubes or from halogen lights or whatever it is that you're using. Um, you're going to get the best quality light, but this is not going to save you if you're not in that scenario. Because if you're shooting under like the worst quality light, like a sodium vapor light that has like one band of yellow, um, you've got no color information there to begin with. You can't calibrate because the light source is not giving you the spectrum to then reflect off of the objects properly and give you the special response back to say, hey, you know what? That's a, that's a blue because that band of blue was emitted from the light source. Um, and we know that that light source is nice and even and has a, a good color quality to it. Same thing is true for fluorescent lights and even worse, compact fluorescent lights, where they only emit a, uh, about half of the spectrum in different spikes. And our eyes average that out to be white, but compact fluorescent bulbs are atrocious. And this is my, I guess, PSA for the episode. If you've got any uh, compact fluorescents in your house, ditch them now. Anything is better than that. Not only like if you're just taking snaps around the house, but if you're displaying your artwork, your colors won't show up on the walls appropriately because the light source isn't emitting all of the colors of the
1: visible spectrum. Right. Well, and again, we started this out by saying it's a niche market, right? If you look at his website, which you've got a link to as well, where he talks about this product, the first picture is a classic photo with this particular HR1 sitting under it. Well, if you're photographing for a museum or let's say you're photographing for an auction house, you need to match artwork. But here's here's my big thing. Well, hold on, Steve. I, I want to reference that photo because he's putting it under the photo.
0: Yet the lighting on the photo itself is terrible because there's yes. shadows on either side of the frame yeah. that are changing the color of it. So even though you calibrate it perfectly, your lighting still sucks
1: in that scenario. Well, except <laughs> that if you're photographing for a museum and it's a classic piece of art in a frame, you're not going to take it out of the frame.
0: Well, but no, w- but you change
1: your lighting to even, right? I mean, right. That, that that would be far more uh, advantageous than. But, calibrating but go down to, to the picture, the, the nature photography one, go down to the bird yep. and click the tab for after it's used the super chroma. Now, I would actually argue, personally, to my eye taste, I prefer the standard shot. Yep. So a key thing is color correction doesn't always look better. We tend to like sharper, more saturated. You know, images that have a certain flavor. It's the, it's, it's the reason some people like a, na- a natural shot out of an iPhone and some people like a straight shot out of a Samsung, which are tend to be more saturated. This does not mean your pictures will be better. It means they will be more accurate, which may be less pleasing to the eye. Well,
0: and I, I don't see any references, any comparison to what a color checker would give uh, in comparison to what this Superchroma um, uh, uh, calibrator is providing. Because, yes, I'm seeing differences from uncalibrated to their calibration. But how much better does it get when you go just shy of a thousand patches? Uh, maybe Like in- the yellow jacket or greenish jacket is a perfect example of it, it looks way better. Right. And so you've got the standard, you've got super chroma standard default profile of some short pants as well. And there's a big difference uh, based on. on and and oh, there is a there. color
1: checker in that picture.
0: There is a color checker in that picture. Um, but I, I, I don't know if they're using like w- w- what's going on there. Uh, yeah. they, they, there's no description as to why it's in that photograph. Um, but hey,
1: if you are the person Ooh, that that's is a going- good one. Uh, the cushion is a really good example.
0: Yeah. And so go, go and check these out. The, the links will be at, um, at photo and, uh, take a look at all of this and voice your opinions. We'd like to know if you calibrate, uh, when you are shooting, I personally calibrate when I do artwork reproduction photography. Uh, and I do a little bit of that. My wife's an abstract painter and I take all of her images and I've got a couple of clients uh, in that same area. And, uh, when I'm doing product photography, even like I, I had a company that got me to shoot tiny little microscopic, uh, uh, components, electronical, uh, electrical components, uh, to solder onto circuit boards, etc. And, uh, they didn't request that I made sure that their particular color of beige, that a lot of these things are was accurate, but why not calibrate to that? I've got my little, uh, color checker nano that I can throw in the frame and take that as a reference shot and just add that to my workflow. That's where this comes into importance is because I can't add this into my workflow because my workflow would be using say Lightroom or on one photo raw, both of which, uh, support the, um, the X-Rite color checker, uh, ability to create profiles on one added that in the last year, which is great. And so that adds to functionality from that angle, but in that same workflow, I could not use
1: this. Um, And so I would have to change my workflow and maybe I don't know. It's not released yet. He may have just like color checker does a Lightroom, You know, he may have an app or a plugin that takes a reference shot and creates a profile based on, Still,
0: I'm glad that something like this is hitting the market for those uh, specialist professionals that require it. Uh, And at a price point, that will be just a line item on a bill to a client. Uh, That if the client requests this level of accuracy, they're willing to pay for whatever extra equipment is required to get you there. Yep, I agree. Yep. Uh, let's bring it back down to the consumer world here, uh, which uh, I'm, I was actually really happy to see this announcement from Tamron. They are announcing their 70 to 180 millimeter f2.8 lens that will be shipping mid May for just under $1,200 US for the Sony E mount mirrorless cameras. Um, now, it's almost 70 to 200. I'm not going to uh, complain too much that you're losing a little bit on the long end, especially if the optical formula is just solidly done um, and at a price point that comes in a lot cheaper than what Sony Sony's current um, the Sony FE 70 to 200 F 2.8 GM OSS lens is just under twenty six hundred dollars. And, and if you look l-
1: at Canon, a Canon 70 to 200 Mark three F 2.8 IS. Uh, I think the retail is 20, you know, 2, 2,000, but you can usually find it for 18 at twelve hundred bucks, well, and I looked up Sigma. Sigma has a seventy to two
0: hundred f 28 for a lot of different lens mounts at around thirteen thirteen hundred and fifty dollars or so, um, but they don't make it for mirrorless platforms. And so there's I no they did I I couldn't find it. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. If if anybody can find a link to that, I did a search for a Sigma seventy to two hundred on uh, the Sony E mount, and nothing came up on B and H, um, and just. T- typing it in just generally 70 to 200 found tons of lenses for Canon Nikon uh the Sigma SA mount etc but nothing for the Sony E mount so that means you don't really have anything else in the 70 to 200 range at that price point at all and Tamron's been doing some pretty good stuff lately a lot of the third party lens manufacturers have been upping their game uh I don't know exactly how this is going to shake out in in practice but uh, I did see some notes from people that get that have some review samples of that including somebody that we've talked about on this podcast before Andy Day who uh, writes for F stoppers uh, had posted some images uh, of his tests And he said he was really happy and it was really sharp. And so if you can make a sharp lens that comes in at a fraction of the price of whatever you're competing with, um, and uh, you don't need that 200 millimeters, you can be happy with 180. This actually is good news for us. You see,
1: here's the thing. First of all, you cannot overstate. There was a day, everybody that I knew, would only shoot manufacturer glass, me being one of them. I'm a Canon shooter. I want Canon glass. I'm a Canon shooter. I want Canon glass. I'm a Nikon shooter. I want Nikon glass. When I still believe when Sigma came out with their art series lenses, the complaint up until then had always been, their lenses are great, both Tamron and Sigma. Their lenses are great, but it depends if you get a good copy, right? The It's almost like the, the quality assurance, the QA Supervision was not there, and so some bad ones would make it through. Well, when they came out with that Art Series glass, which is amazing, I think the third party market lens, uh, the, the third party lens market changed. Tamron writing that as well. I think this is awesome. I do have a problem with the 180. If Sigma is selling for 1,300 bucks, a really nice 70 to 200, and for a hundred dollar savings, I lose that further end of 180 to 200. Uh, I don't like that. I did find an article just now uh, written in January that talked about a rumor uh, of Sigma going to be announcing it. Of course, then we had all the COVID stuff and that stopped everything pretty much. There are some interesting things in this. First of all, this is a 70 to 180 that's only 6 inches long. 5.9 inches long. I mean, it's small and it's only 3.2 inches in diameter. So You've got, I've got it written in here somewhere. Hold on. Uh, 67 millimeter front filter thread. Now compare that to a Canon, which is 77. So you've got a much, much smaller lens. It focuses, they say something weird. They said the focus distance, minimum focus distance is 10.6 inches with manual focus. So it won't do that with autofocus. Interesting. Interesting. It says I mean, 70 millimeters, which is effectively 10.6 inches, but they specifically state manual. Well, I do know that um, the closer you get
0: uh, when you're focusing on a subject, um, the longer it takes autofocus to hunt and find where the focus is. And it's easy to just look at any lens and see, okay, well, how long does it, uh, how, how much uh, does the lens have to travel along the manual right. focusing range from infinity to like five feet? And then from five feet to three feet, then three feet to one foot. Um, the distance gets much, much greater. The distance between one foot and three feet is massive compared to the very short jump from five or ten feet to infinity. Um, and so the closer you get, the longer things take. Um, and so it might a lot of lenses will have a switch on the side. And I get asked when I'm doing workshops all the time, what's this switch for? Um, that switch is to stop the lens from focusing at those close distances. If you know you're not going to be shooting anything there because you might miss the focus and then it takes a long time to hunt yep. all the way through that range. And it's an annoyance and you might miss your shot because of it. One thing so, we don't know about this,
1: they say it's moisture resistant. We don't know exactly what that entails, you know, what, what type right. of a, an element it can really take. True.
0: And, you know, again, you're getting this thing for, uh, just over a thousand dollars and, uh, comparing that to the competition from first parties that most of them, uh, from first party manufacturers are well over twice the price.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. and, uh, and again, I think these companies are doing cool stuff. They've, they've got a, oh, what is it? Uh, 150 to 600 lens. So does Sigma. I think it's 150 to 600. That's. About the same price, a thousand, twelve hundred bucks. Um, they're doing some really, I mean, on Sigma's end, they also have a sport version of it that's eighteen hundred, but same concept. They're making these third party companies are worth looking at now. Yeah, they are. And you know, uh, to your point that you made about
0: why didn't they go seven to two hundred, well, that is such a common range. Um, and whenever somebody, uh, Patents an optical formula because you can't like patent the lens itself, but you can patent the optical formula itself. And because this range has been used so often by so many people, it might, and I'm just guessing here, it might just be hard to affordably create a 70 to 200 millimeter range uh, because that range is so patent encumbered. That's just a guess on my part. Do you
1: really think going from 200 to 180 is how they kept the cost down? I mean, do you really think 20 millimeters? kept the cost down i i don't believe well, it, it would just make them not run into other people's patents that's all which that, that, would keep the cost down
0: yeah that's a good yeah. point okay uh, so that that just you know I, I don't know i'm just uh talking out of thin air here i i'm i'm guesstimating why that making might be. it up as you go is a standard practice yes it is <laughs> i do it often uh, especially on this podcast um, but, uh, if we go into our, uh, our next story, by the way, this is kind of a, a feel good story and piggybacks onto one that we talked about in a recent episode, um, that was not so much. So, our final story for the day uh, involves Lenscoat, a company that makes, uh, that normally makes, uh, little coats that fit on the outside of your lenses that snugly, like a beer cozy, um, that uh, will add camouflage to your super uh, telephoto white lens so that it's less obvious that you're, you know, photographing things in the jungle or wherever it is that you go. Um, And sometimes it's just for style and coolness. And Um, sometimes it's for weather protection and things like that. Exactly. And if I were to drop a lens that has, a lens coat on it, chances are it'll do better than one without. Um, I'm not saying they market it that way, but I've t- touched that material. It's a really thick, or, solid phone. If it's camouflaged, you may not be able to find it. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. So, uh, lens coat, they have shifted to making face masks and they're donating them during the pandemic. Well, I I guess not a lot of people are buying lens coats right now because not a lot of people are buying much photographic equipment, uh, during this time. And so rather than just close up shop, they've retooled themselves to make face masks with the materials that they have on hand. Um, and, uh, it looks like they are just going full on making these things, not asking anything for them, donating them for the greater good of the cause and, uh, they get a thumbs up from
1: me for that. How about you, Steve? I agree. Lens Coat's out of New Jersey. Uh, again, they're known for their camo. And I love one of the the ways that they started their post, which was simply, at Lens Coat, we know how to sew patterns. And these are, when you look at the, the photo of these laid out on a table, I could picture them selling these at a Bass Pro Shop. Right. Yeah. If if you're the type of guy that's a hunter and wants a mask during COVID 19, you go to Bass Pro Shop and you buy these. Don't go to Bass Pro Shop. I'm not saying they actually. They they are not there. They're not there. Yeah, they're not there yet. But this is how you do it. They're by the way, they're not making these to sell them. Right. Let's be clear. This isn't a profit motive for them. They know everybody's down. They're making these. And they're donating them to a local hospital that has been hit hard in New Jersey, which is just outside of the the hot spot of New York. Right. So, you know, compare that to your last story. Well, which we okay. have so to do
0: the last story, uh, Cam Ranger from um, from last week. Um, they were uh, they were purportedly uh, donating one hundred masks if you bought their cam ranger 2. so they were hiding them behind a paywall holding them for ransom and profiting off of this crisis and i decided to revisit this and and thanks again to to mark for pointing this out to me Um, i decided to see if they changed you know if they you know did a full reversal on that they changed it but it's not a reversal right now on their website as we record this it says COVID 19 update for every cam ranger 2 ordered 20 percent of proceeds will be used to purchase and donate face masks to medical providers. So um, what's that
1: read to you, Steve? Okay. So, and by the way, let me also say one more thing on lens coat, even the materials that they're using to make the masks are being donated to them. They make the masks and donate the masks. Now compare that to this on face value in a normal environment, when you say, you know, for for every purchase we'll donate 20% to a charity. That's great. That's marketing. I understand that. In a global pandemic where you have people dying, it's a worldwide health issue. You have you have hospital workers taking those clear plastic folder inserts where you slide your your report paper into the plastic that it's got a three-hole punch. They're taping those to a, a bandana or a, a visor to make face shields to, to say, we're willing to give up 20% of our profits, but we're only going to do it if you buy stuff. And Is, you know, I, I got to say 20% of
0: their profit, not 20% of the total purchase price, 20% of what they would deem their profits. So they are still making... of what their regular profits would be on this.
1: And I don't begrudge them making money. Don't misunderstand me. But I would rather that you just left your business as it is. Charge your normal rate and just make a 20% donation of all you. Just say, you know what? During this time, we're going to donate 20% of everything we make. Uh, Or... Even better, just say, you know
0: what? We're going to purchase a bunch of uh, of equipment, uh, PPE, personal protective equipment. Uh, we're going to purchase a bunch of that. That doesn't matter if it's 20%, 10%, 50%. Yeah. We're and we're going like, to donate it. We're just going to buy a bunch of that stuff, and we're going to donate it, and we're going to put out a press release saying that. doesn't matter Like if you buy our stuff or not. This is what we've done, and this is how we move forward. But the way that it's still written, they are... Using this global pandemic as a marketing uh, marketing measure lever t- tool, it's, whatever it's, it is, it's troubling. By the way, where are they based? You know, they are they're uh, US design, developed, and patented in the United States. I know that much. That says so on their website. I, I went don't to the know-
1: contact page and I don't see an address. But again, even I, 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 I'm so glad I wasn't in the meeting where somebody said, "Hey, here's a good idea." Let's try and boost sales by saying we're going to give some of it away. Just make yeah. the donation. Take the PR for making the donation. And if you don't get PR for making the donation, you did the right thing. Pinedale, Wyoming.
0: Okay. Well,
1: you know. Yeah. There you go. So, it's anyhow. Just, yeah.
0: Uh okay, so well, you had some good and bad on that last one, but I think we're all in this together. And uh and that kind of brings me into uh into my pick of the week. But before we get there, I want to know, Steve, where can people find you, your amazing
1: podcast, and all the stuff that you're up to right now? Uh I am at stevebrazil.com same as the country Brazil, but two L's, and I'm Steve Brazzle on Twitter, Steve Brazzle on Instagram. Add the word photography on Facebook. Steve Brazzle Photography. The podcast is behindtheshot.tv. Uh, that is at behindtheshot.tv. The podcast is behind the shot. It's behindtheshottv on Instagram, behindtheshottv on Twitter, and behindtheshot podcast on Facebook. And uh, just released a new episode today with just amazing documentary photographers. Phenomenal interview, uh, Colin Finley. And the last episode was with well-known. Mm-hmm wedding photographer, like famous wedding photographer, Roberto Valenzuela. Uh, That was fantastic. And uh, you and I are doing our critique shows, which is actually one of the highlights of my month. I love it. We have a Flickr group called Behind the Shot. People submit images there tagged with BTS critique. You and I alternate once a month. You pick some. Next month, I pick some. And then we stream it live on YouTube and people can... If you follow us, either one of us on social media, you'll, you'll see when we're going to do it. Or if you subscribe to the behind the shot channel on YouTube, you'll get a notice when we go live and it is a blast. Right. Uh, I, I love it. it. The stuff that we've been doing together, we also,
0: um, uh, it, we didn't do one this week, but, uh, we've done an F64 lunch bunch with some other professionals and just follow us on, on social media and you'll find out where all of that is. And if you just type in behind the shot and Steve into Google, you'll find him. You don't even have to add his last name. He
1: comes up there pretty good. And yeah, just follow both of both of us. I've got, I'm going to be doing some stuff with Rick Salmon, a uh, concert photographer, friend of mine, Adam L. Macias. Is going to start doing a raw photo challenge and I'm going to help him with that, which is going to be really, really cool. I don't want to share any details, but follow El Micias or me and you'll see when that goes live. So lots happening because we're home. (laughs) <laughs> we
0: are, we are. And uh, while you're at home, uh, and you might be looking for something interesting to do, maybe you've got kids like I've I can hear my uh, three and a half year old girl jumping around upstairs. Uh, and I'm gonna have to play tag team uh, with my wife in just a little bit when we finish recording this. But uh, one of the things that might be fun to explore, something that I've been doing for a while is 3d photography, and you don't have to take the pictures yourself. You have to go out and buy yourself a pair of anaglyph glasses. Anaglyph is not a common word, um, but you've probably put these glasses on before. One eye sees red, one eye sees blue and images created with anaglyph patterns, um, have two ghosted red and blue images over top of each other such that when you put them on, you will see it in stereo 3d. Um, I have a number of these images from my collection. I'm going to put seven or eight of them in this post at photogeekweekly.com. You might already have some of these glasses. If not, I'll put a link on Amazon where you can buy 50 of them for under 10 bucks. You know, share them. They're just paper glasses. It's fine. I just sh- share them with the neighborhood kids, uh, you know, social distancing, of course, but, um, you know, give, and it's not just my work, just type in anaglyph 3d images into Google. And I'm sure you will find, uh, some hopefully safe for work 3d images that, uh, you can share with the family and just use that as something to distract the kids for a little bit. So anaglyph glasses, uh, 3d made super easy for just about everybody. And you could get a sample of what, stuff looks like in 3D at the blog post at photogeekweekly.com in the show notes.
1: Okay, so I just did anaglyph 3D images uh on Google and I did an image search and there's the, I I now have to go find my 3D glasses cuz the one of this tiger jumping at you has got to be fantastic. <laughs>
0: so yeah buy these glasses check it out photography has uh, 3d photography has existed since well 3d imagery has existed predating photography people were drawing in 3d um, and uh, and using special optics to see them before photography was even a thing uh, and it's not a huge thing now but it's always so much fun especially uh, when you have the imagination of a child and you know that Yeah, it doesn't look great in like you don't have good color acuity and you got a bit of a ghosting thing going back and forth. But once you see that depth, um, it's fun. And we need to have a little bit more fun
1: these days, Steve. I completely agree. So my pick of the week is kind of a generic idea. And then I'll give you two examples. And that is a lot of people are at home now and they're the, the number of people that have asked me, you know, I'm home, I'm doing video conferencing. And I'm looking at getting a webcam or I'm looking at getting a better mic or a better camera uh, or some lighting. And you know what? I might even start streaming to my YouTube channel. And so my pick of the week is get yourself a personalized video switcher slash recorder or streaming uh, ability. And there's two ways to go about that. One of them is software. Uh, For my podcast, I use OBS. I love OBS. It's an open source project. It's free. Open broadcaster software. Yeah, open broadcaster software. And it's at uh, obsproject.com. And it runs on Windows, Linux, Mac. Still has some issues on Catalina, which is part of the issue sometimes with open source stuff. There are commercial equivalents to this, like Ecamm Live. If you're on a Mac, that's fully uh, Catalina compatible because it's commercial, right? People are paying for it, it's a subscription. So they've got money to to speed that up. But OBS is, think of it as a video switcher where you have scenes and each scene has elements in that scene that stack up almost like layers in Photoshop. So if I have a picture or a video feed of Dawn and on top of that, I put a transparent ping, that transparent ping or a transparent video file, uh, 444 video file, that transparent file can be used as a lower third over Dawn. And then I Click the mouse or hit a button on my stream deck and it switches to Don and I side by side. As I'm doing those scene switches, I can record it or I can stream live to YouTube. And if you watch our image critiques or if you watch my podcast, that's what what you're seeing. And then here's the other version of this. The problem with software is it's software, right? And it's the problems all software has. It gets updated and breaks something or you update to Catalina without thinking about, oh, I really need OBS. And then suddenly you can't use some of the features in OBS. So that is a hardware video switcher of which Blackmagic's ATEM Mini is about $300. It's a four camera video switcher. Paired with OBS, it becomes a streaming device. But the reason I bring up the Blackmagic is They have now announced the ATEM Mini Pro that is available for back order. It's everything the ATEM Mini is. And I've set an ATEM Mini up. They are awesome, right? Four HDMI inputs. When I say it switches four cameras, it doesn't have to be cameras. It could be a wide angle of me, a side angle of me, an HDMI output from my laptop that's running a PowerPoint or keynote presentation. It could be any HDMI input. Well, the, ATM, the ATEM Mini Pro adds uh, two different things. It adds more than that, but two main things. Number one, it you don't need to pair it with OBS. It has a hardware H.264 encoder built in with the ability to stream right out of its Ethernet port. So that device not only gives you your video switcher, but lets you stream right from it, which is awesome. Or... It lets you record right from it. It has a USB-C port on it, and you can hook a USB-C thumb drive or hard drive straight into the back of it and record to it.
0: Oh, that'd be great to even just have a backup too, right? Uh, yeah. You, you never know what's going to, technology will fail. And so uh, the more independent a device is and the uh, the more it helps with your ability to back stuff up, uh, redundancy is good. I'd always have a, a, a thumb drive stuck into the back of that. Well, or unless a hard drive. at which
1: point you'd need a hub, you could do a hub, but a lot of times you'll have the USB-C port plugged into your computer because when it's plugged into the computer, you can run the ATEM, Blackmagic ATEM software control, which gives you a full software video switcher to control it. Plus it's on the network. So you can install that software on multiple computers and anybody that's got that software could control your ATEM. Well, now if the uh, the mini is 300, what's the mini pro? 595.
0: Okay. And when so you think
1: about it, a, uh, what is it? A webcaster X2 is about $300. And that's a streaming device. It's a, it's a hardware encoder. Th- so, this is becoming more and more important, right? Especially oh, yeah. right
0: now when everybody is working from home. Uh, <laughs> or if you can, you should be. And uh,
1: uh, and everybody's yeah. trying to start their own YouTube channel or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, for 600 bucks, you have a four, I'm going to say camera, but again, it doesn't have to be camera. It's HDMI anything. You have a four camera switcher that has wipes and fades and microphone control and volume control and picture in picture. The one reason I use OBS, I should say this, over I would switch to an A10 Mini Pro in a minute because I'd love a hardware encoder as well. And I could buy an X2, I just haven't. But the one reason that I use software and that is flexibility. So in my podcast, I do a scene where I'm on the left side of the screen and my guest is on the right-hand side of the screen with a black bar between us. It's called a two-up. So it's a side, but it's it's picture in picture in a way, but it's like each of us taking up 50% of the screen. Right. There's no way to do that with this particular piece of hardware. So it would be Don's on screen, full screen, I'm on screen, full screen, or some other input or one of us is a little teeny picture in picture in a corner. That doesn't work for what I want to do. Right. Other than that, I know people who use an ATEM Mini into OBS. Yep. And now you have amazing control because you've got all the camera switching here. You've even got some recording here, but you can bring it into OBS if you want to, uh, to lay out anything there, how free form, how you want, or you could use OBS into this. And I was just looking up some of their other,
0: yeah. Yeah, I'm starting to lose my ability to take speak seven. now at this point. Yes, take seven. Um, the ATEM camera control panel, which is over oh, yes. $3,000. But I mean, I, I'm not recommending that people go out and buy that. But man, if you drool over gear, just go to their website and see what their expensive stuff does. I mean, it is
1: just miracle well, worker. And this $600 ATEM Mini Pro will let you control Blackmagic cameras from this. Right. And if you want to know more about this, by the way, we should plug our friend Photo Joseph. Uh, photo Joseph on YouTube. He has, if you go look at his account and go look at his playlists, he has an entire playlist of three or four videos on the ATEM mini. He has not done a full walkthrough of the pro yet, but he did a little preview and said, as soon as I get my hands on one, I'll do a walkthrough on it. But his ATEM mini videos are fantastic. Awesome. I will put a link to that in the show notes as well to, uh,
0: the wonderful work of Joseph Lenashki, uh, AKA photo Joseph. So, yep um steve thank you again for being on this episode of photo geek weekly um as as always i, I before we go one final thing that i want to uh, just say to people i want to i recommended that people check out folding at home again uh, a couple of episodes ago and there has been a torrent of support uh, in uh, my uh, my team, which is, if you want to join this, it's team uh, 34931. Uh, and so just a shout out to Parham Baker, Chris Hand, Alessio Guestini, uh, M.W. Pearson, uh, Craig Kassekert, Frozen, Arctic Penguin. I don't know who those guys are. Um, Let's Go, Mark Blomquist, Phil Clark, M. Hoffman One, Ian Schultz, N.C. Chuck, uh, Raven.digital, Damon Win10, ESS, Sam Bartalusi, uh, Damon Linux, and Tweddle Photo.
1: Um those are the say, people. say your team number again. It is 34931. And, and if people when they're joining. Don't remember that. Where can they go find that number? That is on the front page of, uh, of
0: Photo Geek Weekly. Uh, there's okay, a little good. widget in the bottom corner. I think the widget's actually broken right now because there's just been so much traffic going through all the stat systems. But it, it displays the the team number there, uh, and uh, I can pull up all the stats. And so I wanted to say thank you to everybody that's donating their computer uh, CPU and GPU cycles to the Folding at Home project, which is currently studying um, drug binding points. For the COVID 19 virus um, or the NCOV 2, whatever they call it as the virus itself. And so, um, with that said, uh, thank you to everybody that has listened, and it's time to stay in and shoot.